Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Von Lai Damone, founder of Work Smart, where she disrupts traditional corporate training with creativity. Her goal is to make crayons a staple office supply. She is also TEDx speaker and advocate for the veteran community. Welcome to the show, Von. Hello, Douglas. Very nice to see you here today. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Yeah, it's great to have you. So let's just hear a little bit about how you got your start and how did you get this obsession with crayons? (laughs) So I got my start. You know, I'm going to go way back to early childhood. I've always been really creative. I would never have called myself an artist. I was never professionally trained as an artist. I was just always creating things. My mom would buy me a shirt or shoes. I would instantly rip them up with a pair of scissors or color them with paint. And, um, you know, she was not too pleased with that, but that's just how I've always been. In college, I started a a small business. I can't even call it a business. I think I just went to garage sales, bought furniture, stripped them and repainted them and sold them to my friends. So creativity has always been a part of my life. But because of my upbringing, I followed a very traditional path of going to school, going to college, getting my MBA and just going into the corporate world. And I kind of ebbed and flowed between the corporate world and entrepreneurial startup ventures for about 15 years. And I think it was because I never felt I was in the right place. I was always looking for where I belonged. So it wasn't until about six years ago that I was working for a large pharmaceutical company. And I really found myself in a place where I'm like, this is 100% not for me. How did I get here? I need to make a drastic change. And it was also the time where my son was born. And between those two things, coming to that realization, having him being born, looking at this little child and thinking, I want him to grow up with a mom that's doing something she loves. So I went back to this idea I had several years ago around starting a business, around bringing creativity into the workplace. And that's where that's where WorkSmart started. But even back then, it wasn't called WorkSmart. It was called Craftivity Events. I was trying to sell workshops into corporations called Weave of Dreams or Follow Your Heart, right? <laughs> Which was not doing so well. So I hunkered back down, revisited it, really kind of thought about like, what am I really trying to do in the workplace? And and redeveloped it into what it is now, bringing creativity into team development and leadership training in the corporate environment. That's amazing. And so I, I guess I'm curious, you know, you told a story about being very creative as a young child. 
and then you jumped to getting the MBA and then kind of being in the corporate world and kind of clocking in and clocking out and maybe being a little disconnected from the creativity. At least that's what it seemed like. And so when did the creativity disconnect first start to happen? When did you feel that wane? Was it gradual? Was it sudden? Like, how, what was that like? That's an interesting question, Douglas, because I don't really think I've thought about that before. And I remember still being very creative in college and even into parts of my career, still painting on the side or doing some creative things. But I think it was really um, getting into the corporate world and starting to like climb the ladder of the corporate experience and really being focused on that, that not only was there not creativity in the workplace, but I stopped being creative in my personal life too. Mm. And that really was where I found the need for creativity. Uh, so I think possibly if I had remained creative in my personal life, I may have not needed as much in my professional career, but it's almost a blessing that I did because it really got me to the point where I was like, wow, like if I'm feeling this way, how many other people are feeling this way in about, about their work, right? Where there's no creativity, where creativity is is limited to the people in marketing or whatever department people consider normally creative. But why can't you know people in the accounting department have some creativity there? Now, maybe people will argue that. Maybe you shouldn't be that, that creative in accounting, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, people have certainly gotten into a lot of trouble with creative accounting <laughs> yes, practices, <laughs> but maybe they could be a little playful in how they collaborate and how they communicate with each other for sure. <laughs> so this really gets into one of our meeting mantras around, you know, embrace the child's mind and really big fan of Daniel Coyle's book, The Culture Code, where he talks about, you know, one of the examples he gave was a Stanford study that looked at um, kind of this creativity exercise and how kindergartners did such a better job than CEOs. And then he tried engineers and designers and then even a cross-functional group of professionals. Yet the kindergartners repeatedly did better. And then what you were just telling me really reinforced this argument because he says that the reason that those groups struggle so much is that they spend so much of their time trying to understand their position as it relates to the group. And so it's all politics, right? And so and you talked about climbing the ladder. And I imagine that the more you climb the ladder, the more political things get, the more you had to be concerned about navigating those types of things. And it can be all consuming and it can rewire your brain. And so I think that it's not surprising that it's hard to keep up even the creativity in your personal life. Yeah. And that really resonates with what you just said, Douglas, because I feel that, you know, as you climb that corporate ladder and as you get higher up in organizations, you should be taking more risks but you don't, right? It's almost the opposite. You stop taking risks and creativity is about taking risks. So you really do lose your creativity or your, your willingness to be more creative or your willingness to take more risks as the stakes become higher for your career. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like we often see that with folks that are maybe about to make tenure or, you know, they're thinking about their legacy or they're like, you know, it's only one year until I retire. Do I really want to rock the boat here? And and if there's not already a, a very rich culture of experimentation and curiosity and risk taking, it's really hard for folks to go out on a limb in those situations. Absolutely. And I do hear that with some of my clients who will come to you know, a, a workshop about how to bring creativity in the workplace. And we teach them these innovative tools on problem solving and brainstorming. And they'll say, they love it, but, like, but I don't feel like I can bring this in the workplace because it's not, it, I'm afraid it won't be accepted. 
Mm. So let's talk about that a little bit because I hear that often too. What are some of your go-to strategies when you hear that from a participant in one of these workshops? What do you kind of tell them? How do you how do you coach them through navigating that? Well, oftentimes I'll tell them, like, just start with yourself, right? I think the more confident you are on the tools, the more likely you are willing to spread the word about it. So rather than bringing some of these tools around creative problem solving to a group to start with, do it on your own, right? These tools are meant to be done individually or collectively. So try some of the tools with your, you know, just on your own. And as you see how effective they are, you're more likely now and more willing to go and tell other people about it, right? To ha- so have the experience for yourself first so that you can have the confidence and competence to go out there and share it. The other thing I tell people is don't use the word creative. You know, don't use the mm. word creative. Just go out there and say, we're going to try something different today. And here it is. <laughs> I love that, Vaughn. And, you know, one of the things I think that goes hand in hand with that is I coach people on don't tell them the name of the activity. Right. Because a lot of these activities have like fun, creative names that are meant to be kind of almost like, well, it's just branding, right? If an activity has a really clever, witty name, you're going to remember it. Well, that can get you into trouble when you got a, a group of naysayers and you're like, okay, we're going to do how might we's or whatever. Right? Right, it's like, right, exactly. Just start doing it, right? Just kind of tell them how to do it and get them doing it so they don't have a they don't have a name to fight against or whatever <laughs> or a thing to like push against. And I learned that with, the, like I was mentioning, the first iteration of my business was called Craftivity Events. And I was trying to you know, force feed workshops to organizations called Weave of Dreams, right? And now I do the same, I do those Weave of Dreams workshops, but they don't, they're not called that, right? It's, it's around values, it's around, it's around generating values and, and collaborating on, on, on values and seeing how values impact the workplace. And also the idea of, of creative artifacts, a lot of my work is around visual arts. I do, we do our workshops and at the end we'll often do a creative art project as an anchor back to the work we did that day. I no longer call them creative art projects. They're, they're, they're called creative artifacts now. And all of a sudden, companies are like, hmm, we need artifacts. <laughs> they didn't need the creative <laughs> art project. They need the creative artifact. That's right. And, you know, I think it's interesting that you mentioned values a second ago. And it's not just about language. It's about values. And it's, it's a bit meta because you were talking about they were using these tools to focus on creating shared values. But at the end of the day, you know, an executive or any member of a workshop has things they value. And if you can align your language to things they value, or if you can align the work to things they value, they're going to embrace it a lot more, right? And uh-huh. so if there are things that they're afraid of that they maybe don't value as much, that's going to be a hard sell. Absolutely. And here's something I learned to do as I started working with more clients is know who you're talking to, right? Know, like exactly what you're saying, know your clients. So visit their websites. In, in my proposals, I often am sprinkling in words I found from their website that correlate to what I do, but in their language. Mm-hmm. That's right. I love that. And so I want to come back to, you mentioned in your work that you do creative problem solving type of activities, et cetera. Can you give some examples of like how you're helping teams kind of embark on this creative work and what some of these kind of tools might look like? Certainly. I mean, it's hard because a lot of them are visual, but you know, like for a, a common one is from improv, the yes and method, mm. where we are talking, where, when you're coming up with ideas, rather than saying no, but, or uh, what I talk about is like the idea of killing ideas before they have a chance. So oftentimes in a meeting room, you will ask a question and people, someone will give an answer or someone will give an idea and the next person says, no, but, right? Or yes, but. 
Either way, whether it's a no but or yes but, what you're doing is you're killing the idea before it has a chance. So this yes and principle, as you know, is this idea of letting people share their idea and the next person has to say yes and and add to that idea. But I think the overall, rather than sharing like individuals, like the overall premise of the work I do in creative problem solving is the, I, the concept that you want to give everyone a chance to have their voice heard in a way that makes sense for them. So again, going back to that conference room, you're in this meeting room, you know, the lead person asks a question, let's come up with ideas for X, Y, or Z. And you have, you, we all know these people too, you have those two or three people who have all the ideas. They're gonna continue to raise their hand and give ideas. And then you have the rest of us, like me, who are actually introverts and I don't think that way, right? I can't come up with ideas off the top of my head. I'm uh, for several reasons, right? Number one, I, that's not the way I think. And number two, I, want, I don't wanna sound stupid. <laughs> I wanna think about my ideas before I state them out loud. So with creative problem solving, creative thinking, with visual tools, what you're able to do is give everyone access to ways to share their ideas in a way that makes sense for them. So some examples for that might be, okay, so you ask your question, now I'm gonna play classical music for 10 minutes. Think about your ideas and write them down. There's Legos in front of you. Build your ideas, right? We're going. You sketch your ideas. So, so for people who have different ways of thinking to be able to share ideas, rather than just saying speak them out loud right now. Mm, I really like that. And you know, one of my favorite go-to's is getting people into small groups to combat some of the like you know over talkers or people that are having trouble sharing or talking. And one of my favorite prompts that I, I learned from the awesome and great Keith McCandless is um, when you come back from a small group activity and you're now in the big group again, asking the group, what is something that everybody must hear? Oh, I like that. Yes. Right. Because all like you ask people, like, what do you hear that's interesting or like anyone want to share anything they heard? But it's like, what is something that everyone must hear? It's like really provocative from the sense of like, oh, yeah, the thing Vun told me people need to hear that. Right. Because, you know, in those small groups, people had that thought like, oh, that was good. Right. That was good. Yeah. I, like, I wish people could know this. And so you give them the opportunity to share that. Yeah, it's really good. I'm using that one too, Douglas. I'm going to take that one from you. <laughs> I, know. I know. That's that's one of the beautiful things about facilitation, you know, and creating communities of practice is that we can all share because, you know, there's cool techniques and cool prompts that just kind of work. Right. And it's like mm -hmm. all, just kind of add little nuggets to our toolkit. Yeah, And that's what I love about voltage control and that community, because I was having a conversation with someone the other day. I have no idea who it was, but they were talking about the communities I built on, you know, in this work. And I thought the, the beauty, oh, you know what it was? I'm, there's this conflict management course I teach. And we talk about, we, people do a survey and it's about, and what am I talking about? This was for your, your facilitator course. What's the Thursday thing, facilitator? Oh yeah, facilitation lab. Okay, for facilitation lab, I did this conflict management course for facilitation lab. And what I had them do before was a survey around what is your go-to conflict resolution style. And there's five of them. One of them is competitive. And what was so interesting mm -hmm. is that you know this was a group of facilitators. Nobody had chosen competitive. And I thought that was so interesting because it says so much about this community of facilitators because we are all so willing to share and help each other and share and just share ideas. That's pretty phenomenal. Also, I feel like that's in the water here in Austin. It's like there's such a, a sense of helpfulness in the 
just in the ecosystem and the community. And I really appreciate it. I think that it tends to create better results than to be super competitive or super, I don't know, let's restrictive or exclusive. And it's interesting because I feel like where else do you find that? It's an interesting dynamic between facilitators, even though we all, you know, most of us have our own businesses, are running our own thing, yet everyone is still willing, willing to share and collaborate. I think it's also a passion for the work and how we elevate the, I would say, the practice or the discipline. And the more we share about what we're learning and what we're noticing allows us all to elevate it as a, a form of leadership. Because the more people that do it, the better off we are. It's almost like capitalizing society, right? The more people that do it and they get good at it, the more that we can, it'll raise the GDP. That's right. Yes. It raises the value for all of us. And then on the other side of it too, is the way I look at it as well is, you know, when I started my business, it was, there was a lot of hoarding, right? Oh, you want, yes. You want me to do a a workshop on how to file your taxes? Sure. Let me figure that out. (laughs) Right. It was like, there was so much like, I will do anything anyone wants me to do. I will learn it and try to do it. But as my business grew and as I saw impact on clients by collaborating, um, I just didn't, most of the work I do now is through collaboration because, because really the goal is to bring the most, the highest value to the client. And if I can't do it, I'm going to bring someone on who can. That's awesome. And so that brings me to a topic that we spoke about earlier, is this idea of flow. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about flow in general, but it also might be interesting to examine it from the perspective of creating flow with a collaborator, because I've certainly found collaborators that I can instantly get into the flow with, whereas others, it's been more difficult. And I really treasure the ones where it's just almost instantaneous. You know, you don't work with them for a year and you come back together and it's like, it's almost like we just took a coffee break and we came back, right? Yes. So when I talk about flows, I went on this retreat, or I shouldn't say, it was a weekend with um, Karen Leadership Strategies. They're based in San Diego, and they take people on weekend, three-day outdoor adventures, and there's leadership topics that we discuss. So, So it was interesting. I went on the Black Canyon river canoeing trips and then our topic was flow so that just it just that just flowed nicely and what i what we talked about was this idea of like how do you find flow in your life and for me it's always been this idea of of it's always been accidental for me right so it's always been this this idea of like oh my gosh i how did all these hours pass i've been doing all this work and the hours just went so quickly and i got a lot accomplished but what I learned in this trip and in their lessons about flow is that you can actually stack these triggers to find your flow. So there apparently is a psychological trigger, social triggers, and environmental triggers. And under each of those categories, there's things you can do. So what I've been trying to do now is like, okay, if I want to get in flow, what psychological trigger can I put in place right now? Something like I'm going to focus on something that, that demands all my attention. A social trigger might be something like it has to be familiar enough for me or be in a familiar space, but make it a little bit challenging. And then environmental flow might be something like create a a rich environment, play music in the background. So if I stack those triggers, I'm more likely to get myself into the state of flow. So when you ask about doing that in collaboration with someone, that's a really interesting topic because is that something that just comes naturally and... I wonder, and I haven't tried this, I wonder if you can stack triggers to get into a better collaboration for those that you're saying like it's not as as natural. 
Yeah, I think the the question then becomes, do we share the same triggers? That's right. And do we value the same things? And then that that also made me think a little bit about this notion of group flow and how like when we were having events in person, this notion that we would really think intentionally about the initial conditions or the environment we wanted to create so that everything was easy and, you know, everything flowed. And so, you know, how are the, how's the room organized? Do we have round tables or square tables? How many chairs do we have? Do we have chairs? You know, is there a projector? Where is it located? Do we have music? Where is the food going to be? You know, all these kind of questions around how we organize the space and how we lay out groups and thinking about even the flow of the event will um, directly impact how people can go in and out of flow states. Yeah. So I so that's interesting because I didn't really do, um, you know, you, at Vulture, you guys do a lot of events. So my events were basically facilitating workshops at corporations, at like at someone's office. So I didn't always have complete control over what that what that looked and felt like. But I, I tried my best. But you have more experience in that sense. I feel like what I had to do was learn how to do that virtually. Right. So you may have been able to take some of your experience in, in a live setting and be like, OK, so here are all the elements that we want to recreate virtually. And that's interesting. So I, I kind of went into the virtual environment thinking I cannot take what I was doing in person and just throw that, in, throw that onto a, into a virtual environment. So how do I re, recreate that same idea of flow, that, I, that same feeling of collectiveness and camaraderie in a virtual environment? And for me, over the last year, or a little more than a year now, what I found around that is first preparation, right, or, or setting expectations, and say expectations for what we need the audience to do. Keep your camera on, like get ready to participate. Here might be some pre-work. And then within the facilitation, making sure those transitions were really smooth and making sure that we had a, a many different elements for people to connect, whether that's, you know, it wasn't all like, okay, throw things in the chat. Okay, here's seven breakout rooms. It was like, okay, let's throw a breakout room here. That makes sense. Now let's have people post things in chat in, in, for this exercise. Um, now let's have everyone, some a few people share out loud to the whole group here. And I found that to be really interesting to, to navigate and try to figure out during this time, like what worked, what didn't work. And I think in terms of facilitation and when I talk about or not even facilitation, even when I work with clients who run their own meetings, is this idea of giving people dedicated time and giving and being really intentional, intentional in this virtual environment about giving people time to connect. Because that's what, I mean, the way, I, mean I was at, at Control the Room Live in, in Austin two years ago, and there was the way the room was laid out, there was food, right, where the food and drinks were, and the way there was time and space made for connection really made a difference. And if we're not doing that in a virtual environment, then we lose out on so much. That's right. We don't want to make those things victims of a shift in space, right? Like we're shifted to this virtual space so we can't lose sight of what are the core kind of principles that we need to live by. And connection is one of them. As facilitators, we have to establish connection. And it certainly bubbled up right at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, we, we held events for facilitators to come. It was almost like group therapy for facilitators, right? Which is actually the precursor for Facilitation Lab. And that that came up big time. You know, it was two big themes. One was this like real concern about how do we foster connection and will it be lost? And then there was a concern 
around, you know, will, you know, we be able to support this digital divide and the like lack of access kind of thing. Get that. Yeah. And, and how has that been? Like how, what have you seen from, from what you've developed? You know, I, the, the lack of access thing is, is, you know, one that has to be handled on a case by case basis. Like to your point earlier about knowing your audience and who's showing up, who could be there, who's being left out, who is being excluded because of circumstances and how do we include them either by sending them devices or providing a space that they can go to, to connect in, or even just like, you know, reducing the fidelity. Like, do we make this a phone call so that they can participate in some way? So I think it's just designing around those constraints and understanding that they're there. And then as far as the connection piece, I think it's everything you were just describing around just making it a focus and being intentional about it. And, you know, quite often that might involve things like energizers, icebreakers, et cetera. And, you know, we always advise when you're doing those things, ideally tie them into the purpose of the intent of the event. So it's not just, it doesn't feel like, oh, why are we doing this thing? Let's connect it into the work that we're doing, but give time for people to connect and to build some rapport and understanding. Yes. I, I love that point too, because I think it is always, it is always important to, to like, like make those connections and those transitions so that they, it just makes sense. So people don't think you're, I'm just doing this exercise to do this exercise, but make them meaningful. I think that's where, you know, facilitators can really make a difference is in terms of like when, like building those icebreakers, those energizers, so that it's really about creating a way for people to build personal connections to each other rather than just, just having fun. And that, and I do, I often talk about team building versus team development. I think it's the same thing. Mm. Like team building is let's have fun together. Let's get together and whatever it might be like, not like clearly not virtually, but like go bowling or, you know, go on a scavenger hunt. But for me, these energized that you're talking about are more like team development. We're like, how do we have fun together? But we're also using the time to get to know each other better and get to know how to work well with each other. Yeah, you know, I, th I think to me, the best way to define the difference is about the half-life. So team building exercises have a very short half-life. Team development has a much longer half-life because we've actually become more intentional about doing things that are going to have lasting value because we created some deeper connection that's going to be a lot harder to evaporate or, or kind of like just pull apart or tease apart. You know, it's mm -hmm. like it's almost like weaving a basket that's real tight versus one that's really loose, right? Is it going to come apart or is it going to stay together? That's good. I, there's an exercise I've done in person. I haven't, but now that I'm like, I finally got, I finally started using Mural. And now, big thanks to you guys too. Like, I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be facilitating facilitation lab and doing, I'm using something on Mural. But there was an exercise I used to do in person that was, it was yarn. And have you heard of climber cards? But you can use any pictures. You can just like, I just threw a bunch of pictures on the floor and I had people pick a picture that represents something about you outside the work you do. They pick a picture up. Someone will start with a ball of yarn and they would say what their picture means, right? So if I had a picture of a farmhouse, I would say like, this is sort of, I, I picked a picture of the farmhouse because I want to live on a farm one day. And if that resonated with anyone, they would raise their hand. You hold on to the yarn, throw it to each person who has their hand up. So then you can, you know, by the time you're done, you have this big yarn weave. So it's a, it's a visual representation of all the connections in the room. And it was one of the most powerful exercises I did because you found connections you would never talk about in the workplace. There was one organization I worked with where this young man, he was probably like 22, 23, you pick, picked a picture of a car and said, I love to restore old classic cars. And this other woman on the other side of the room, late 60s, like, me too. <laughs> like, when would those two have ever had that, con that connection? 
And I guarantee you, next time she walks past his desk, they're having a conversation. Next time he emails her, he's, she's probably going to that email a, lot, a little bit faster than she would have before. That's really cool. And so what do you call this? Um, I, I thought, was that my, was that my weave of dreams? I have no idea. No, I don't, weave I don't of know. Dreams. It was, I know that isn't what my weave of dreams, my weave of dreams was around values. That one, I don't know what I called it. I think I, it was just a connections exercise. Cool. Yeah. And, uh, I love that the yarn is like this hysteresis around the connections that were made. So like, uh, even as we moved on and there's new connections getting made, you can still look back to like, oh yeah, I remember this connection now. You can almost take a photo of it too. And you've got like these right. lines, like you got these indicators of like well, the connections that are made. That's really cool. So speaking of that and speaking of mural is now that I'm thinking about it, that could be a really interesting way to capture it because on mural, what you can have are those images, you know, the image that they, they selected on the mural board. So then you can really just have a, um, an artifact of, of who picked that image and where the connections are. You know, it makes me think like one way to do it is like if you dropped in a bunch of images into your mural and uh, so you got, I don't know, 30 people dropping 30 images and then you can use their alignment tool. So you could say a line left and a line top and now they're stacked all on top of each other. Interesting. And then you could like create like a a circle of people and you go, all right, starting with Susan, we're going to go clockwise. So Susan, do you get the first image? And you can even put like something on top of the stack so they wouldn't be able to see what's, what's there until you get started. And then they drag it over and then they each drag one and you could draw the connections, you know, after you. Anyway, that would be kind of fun. The climber cards, what, what, you mentioned those briefly. Were those kind of cool, like, thought, thought starter cards? Yeah, so Amy Climber, she's a consultant. Um, she works in similar work, right, in, in bringing creativity into the workplace and creative thinking, creative problem solving. And she watercolor acrylic painted I don't know these 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 cards and they're just like a deck of cards and on each card there's just a watercolor picture whether it's a a fish a farmhouse whatever it is and it's just this they're so simple you wouldn't think like well what are these for but you can use them for so many things for storytelling for activities like this on connection because with visual images what's amazing about them is that people read them differently Right? We all see things through our own perspective, our own lens. So a, you know, a school of fish on a you know, watercolor school of fish on a card to me is, might mean something completely different to you. Not might, most likely will mean something completely different to you. So it's a great way to use a visual tool to see other people's perspectives. That's cool. I love it. So I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier around these kind of pivots and the shifts and you know, we had to make a big shift, gosh, what was it, 18 months ago? And now we're embarking on what might be another shift with hybrid as people start to think about going back to work and hosting meetings that, you know, may or may not include people that are in person and remote. And, you know, we just released our hybrid work guide, which has some current thinking in it. I'd love to hear what's kind of on your mind with regards to having to support this and you know, when we spoke earlier before the show, you were mentioning that you haven't had to do much of this yet, but it's always interesting to hear like how people are processing what might be coming. Yeah. And I think other facilitators might find it comforting just to hear some of your perspective on like, gosh, what is this going to mean for me? And so what are some of the questions you're asking yourself right now as it relates to having to start to maybe hold some hybrid sessions? Well, it's interesting because I think this past year has taught me to really uh, embrace ambiguity and all of us have had to make that shift. So I remember when we, you know, when we first went into lockdown, I w- I'm part of this little consultant group. And I, I remember being on the phone with them or on Zoom with them saying like, I'm not doing anything on Zoom. I'm just waiting. 
right? I'm like, I have no desire to do anything virtually. I'm just going to wait until things go back to normal. And about two months in, I'm like, okay, maybe I should be doing something differently. And clients start calling and saying, hey, could that workshop we did last year, are we able to do that again this year? But clearly, virtually. And it made me, it forced me to look into it. It forced me to make a shift and, and just change the way I did things and to think creatively and to really be like, okay, let me create this for them now. So like we said before the show, I have no idea what, I've no, I have not had experience doing hybrid, uh, hybrid facilitation. But what's interesting is I am not scared of it. I'm really excited because I know we can do it. Right? I know we can do it. There's tools out there. I know we as facilitators have the mindset to do it. And I think the experience of redesigning, redeveloping, and all that creation we had to do over the past year built my confidence to know whatever that hybrid looks like, we're going to nail this thing and we're going to make it so amazing and great. So that's where my mindset is in terms of the logistics of how we're going to do that. No idea, but that's also exciting to me. No doubt. I mean, you know, I think the one of the strong messages I wanted to send with the guide was that, you know, this is not a prescriptive guide. This is a set of considerations as well as some ideas on how to solve some types of things that we're going to run into. And we even encourage people to reach out with feedback and with further ideas because we want it to be a, a growing, ever-expanding guide because uh, we're going to embark on a, a journey, if you will, or, or, or time period of experimentation because... There are no right or wrong answers. There are no best practices, and we're going to figure them out as we go. As, as we've done. And, and what we were talking about before really plays into that, that this is a, a, a community that, that enjoys sharing and enjoys elevating our profession. So I have, I'm, I'm excited to see, see what that guide is currently and what it becomes. Absolutely. Well, I think that lands us to a nice stopping point, Vaughn. And I want to thank you for the time today and i um, excited to hear about all the work you're doing and creativity and, and just the enthusiasm you have for embarking on this next frontier of hybrid. It's going to be fun times. And I'm sure we'll be comparing notes. And I wanted to give you a moment to leave our listeners with a final thought. Sure. So I, we, what we didn't touch upon is my work around curiosity. And what I always like to say, and, and it, it plays into what we just talked about, is this idea that like, the world is clearly full of unknowns. But when we follow our curiosity, ask what if in a forward thinking way, like what if I do X, Y, and Z, and then take small steps towards that curiosity. That's how we create possibilities for ourselves and for others. So that is a TEDx talk that I, I did about just right before... Um, Right before we, we shut down, um, my TEDx talk is called What If the Life-Changing Power of Curiosity and Courage? So you can go check that out. And I am always on LinkedIn all day long. That's my social media platform of choice and of addiction. So find me on there. I love meeting new people. And then also, if you'd like to follow my work and join us for some upcoming events, um, you can go to my website, worksmartadvantage.com, and join my newsletter called Curious About Creativity. Excellent. Well, I highly encourage folks to check out the newsletter and any of your upcoming workshops because not only does Vun work with companies in the private workshops, she also periodically offers public workshops. So definitely worth checking out because this is really incredible stuff. And remember, there's a difference between team building and team development and it's worth doing. It will pay dividends. So thanks again, Vun, for being on the show. It was a tremendous pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, Douglas. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. 
And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com.